Thank you, Jesus. Well, let me uh, go back and just continue to share a little bit on hope. I know I said I wasn't going to do this, but I'm doing it. But I've got about four or five pages more of scriptures, and I've probably got 20 pages that I didn't use. You know, there's a lot in the Word of God on this. And so I just want to go through a few things here and continue to talk about the power of hope and define hope again as your positive imagination, a creative imagination instead of a destructive imagination. And I tell you, I have really been blessed by this. This is something I live by. And I, even before I had these scriptures and connected some of these dots, you know, I have fought ever since the Lord first touched my life to maintain that vision that God gave me about I can know Him and that that relationship with Him will allow me to overcome anything that comes my way. And I've had things, you know, I've got a teaching that goes along with this entitled The Four Keys to Staying Full of God. And it talks about the first thing you have to do is glorify esteem, magnify what God has done in your life. And I do this a lot. I mean, I spend a lot of time going back and remembering March the 23rd, 1968, And you know what I'm doing? I'm using my imagination to remember and to keep these things fresh and alive. And I've just never let those things die. And I don't take credit for it other than the sense I've cooperated. But man, this is just something God burned in my heart. When the Lord first touched me, I was assaulted by everybody that this was of the devil. And I was in a Baptist church. And the very next day, I mean, it happened on Saturday night, March the 23rd, 1968... And on Sunday morning, I got up in front of my Baptist church, 600 people there. And I stood up and told them, I said, I don't know what happened to me. I think I got filled with the Spirit. And I said, I'm never going to be the change. And I, same, and I used to rededicate my life every time they had a service. If we had a revival meeting and they gave an invitation for people to rededicate their life, I'd go down seven nights a week and rededicate myself. I was all, I just always knew that there was something more and I was longing for it, but I didn't know how to get there. And I stood up in front of those people and I said, I'll never rededicate my life again. I said, I'll never have to. I gave God everything I've got. I said, there's nothing left to give. And I was 18 years old. And you would have thought, you know, if I'd have got up and confessed that I committed adultery, somebody would have come up and said, well, God could forgive you. Somebody would have been nice, but nobody was nice. The pastor of the church told me, that's of the devil. You're saying you're filled with the Spirit the way Paul was filled with the Spirit. You're never going to have to rededicate. You're going to live a life of victory from now on. And I mean, I was assaulted and told that this was of the devil. And I just had a lot of things happen. And uh, anyway, my point is that from the very beginning, I had to fight to hold on to this vision and to maintain it. And did you know that every person, there was about seven or eight people in that prayer meeting and every person in that prayer meeting got touched, were changed. Martha's brother, Steve, was my best friend. And the next morning, I was up there at six o'clock. He was cleaning the church and we were talking about this. And you know, to this day, Steve still doesn't uh, agree with this. I mean, for a while he did, and life just got in the way. And you know, to this day, he's not operating in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's not a single person out of that group that has maintained it 
but me, and again, it wasn't because I'm somebody special. It's just because, man, God touched my life and I wasn't going to let this get away from me. I was not going to let that happen. I've read the scriptures where Solomon, you know, after in his old age, he married all of these wives and it says that they turned his heart away from the Lord who had appeared unto him twice. And those were in dreams. Did you know many people would discount a dream? And think, well, it was only a dream. Maybe that was my pizza. Maybe that really wasn't God. But it says God appeared unto him twice. And it says, how could a man turn away from God who had appeared unto him twice? Many of us in here have had the Lord appear unto us, speak unto us, touch our lives multiple times, many more times than twice. And now we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? We just shouldn't be the way that we typically are leaky vessels where it's just hard to maintain. I'm telling you, these things that I'm talking about are things that I have lived and they have changed my life and it's what's kept me on course is the fact that I can see things with my heart. I see things. I had a guy come up this morning and say that he had problems with somebody and he said, I only saw him once. I needed to see him twice. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that's a good way of putting it. Are you looking at your situations only once or are you looking at it twice? Are you looking up and seeing with supernatural sight, seeing things through the Spirit? So anyway, this has just been powerful in my life and, and um, it really has made a difference. In Psalms 146 verse 5, it says, Happy is he that hath the, Lord, hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. You know what this is doing is linking hope to your joy, to your happiness. I could say it this way. If you aren't happy, if you aren't joyful, and again, you need to define that. That doesn't mean necessarily foolish and acting as if there's no problems. Happiness isn't dependent upon circumstances. But I'm talking about a godly happiness that regardless of what's going on, man, you're still in love with the Lord. You're still rejoicing in God. If you don't have that uh, happiness then your hope is not in the Lord your God. That doesn't mean you don't know the Lord. doesn't mean you aren't saved. doesn't mean you hadn't had past experiences. But at that moment, if you're letting the circumstances of this life get to you, your hope has been diminished. You aren't seeing things from God's perspective. I believe that. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 28, The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. You know, in that very verse, it contrasts two things, hope and expectation. And hope is the positive side, and the expectation of the wicked is the negative side. So I believe that you can use this to further define hope, that hope is expectation. I think it's Strong's uh, Dictionary that says it's a confident expectation of good. And that's what it's defined as. And so hope is expecting something. Again, this is the reason, you know, we use these modern translations to translate a lot of things, and that's fine, and there's a lot of good things to gain from it. But, you know, often we'll quote uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a hope in a future, is what the NIV says and a lot of other things. But in the King James, it says to give you an expected end. I like that. Because you know what? You can expect, you can count on God's Word to work in your life. And you don't have to have a dread, which is a negative hope, 
A dread is a negative image. You don't have to have a dread that as you get older, you're going to become decrepit and that you won't be able to make it and that maybe you'll go out with a whimper and things like that. Man, uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 7, I believe it is, says that uh, Moses was 120 years old and his natural force wasn't abated nor his eyesight dim. If he could do that under the old covenant without the power of the Holy Spirit and without all of the benefits that we've got, then praise God, I believe that we can expect to live a long, healthy life and to be strong. And you don't have to just lose it and be out of it at the end of your life. I like that. And so the hope of the righteous shall be gladness. If you're really operating in hope, you shouldn't have a dread. You shouldn't have a fear. You shouldn't let what happened to your family members or somebody you know paint a picture and force an image on the inside of you that causes you fear every time you think about getting older. Man, there's a lot of people that, you know, they departmentalize their life. And so in their ministry, they're going to take these scriptures and they're going to go out and start using their imagination and they're going to see God's word come to pass. And they're going to see them being able to get this building and minister to people. And they're going to see their church growing and they're going to see people's lives changed. And they see these things. And then in this area of old age, well, this is the way it's been. Everybody in my family's had heart problems. And by the time they're 60, they've got to do this. And you, can't, and you know what? They just departmentalize their life. I'm telling you, you ought to let this affect every single area of your life. And if there is anybody in the Word of God who succeeded and prospered until their old age, well then, praise God, we, filled with the Holy Spirit, ought to be able to expect those good things. You need to quit cursing your old age and instead go to blessing it. Take all of the scriptures that even when you're old and gray-headed, that you will declare God's goodness unto this generation and you aren't going to fail. And we need to take the word of God and paint a picture in every area of our life. In Romans chapter 4, let me turn over and read these because I only wrote down a verse, one verse here. But Romans chapter 4, this is of course talking about Abraham. And it says in Romans chapter 4 verse 18, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That's referring to Genesis chapter, uh, what is that? Chapter 15, verse 6, I believe, where he says, Count the stars in the sky or number the grains of sand on the seashore, so shall your seed be. Five words. He based his hope on five words. Man, we have millions of words. If Abraham could sit there and defy all of the odds and do all of these things. His hope was based on the Word. Again, this is a linkage between the Word of God and hope. If you are not studying the Word of God and keeping the Word of God in front of you, then you're going to let the negativity of this world make your love grow cold. Your image, your vision is going to be negative. If all you do is read the statistics and listen to the news... We've got to get to where the Word of God is dominating us and speaking things and painting pictures on the inside of how our life is going to go. And so Abraham had five words from God. So shall your seed be. And he used those five words to be able to believe when all hope was gone. Who against hope believed in hope. That means when it was hopeless, he still had hope. You know, if God was to speak to you, if you were 100 years old and if your wife was 91 years old, or at the time God spoke this to him, 
and told them they'd conceive in the next year. He was 99. His wife was 90. And if God told you you were going to have a child, and supposing you considered that a blessing, <laughs> which is a major concession, <laughs> I'm not sure I wouldn't rebuke that and think that couldn't be God. But if this is what you'd been believing for, and if you considered having a child when you're 100 years old a blessing, you know how most people would respond? They would go to the internet and they'd look it up and say, what's the oldest that a person has ever had a child? How, what's the oldest person that ever became a parent? Then they would study. Then they'd go to the doctor and get their sperm counted or they'd have their wife examined to see, is this still possible? And you'd look at all of these things that would paint a negative picture and then you'd try and hold on to the promise of God. But see, it said he didn't do that. When all hope was gone, he didn't go to the doctor. He didn't get somebody else's opinion to see, can this happen? He didn't take a vote. He didn't ask, has anybody else ever seen this? You know, it's amazing how we all want to stand out from the crowd, but we have this herd mentality to where we just feel bound like, has anybody else ever seen this happen? That's not a limitation on God unless you make it a limitation. Man, when all hope was gone against hope... He believed in the hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. And be not weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And you know, we can define unbelief a lot of different ways. But in the context of everything I've been teaching, you know what I believe unbelief is? Just a negative imagination. You're seeing failure. You've considered these facts and it's painting a picture on the inside of you that it won't work. And if you see that, that's unbelief. If you let circumstances, people, whatever, paint an image on the inside of you and you have this vision that it just can't happen. Nobody's ever seen it. That's unbelief. And if you have that, you will stagger at the promise of God and you won't receive. Not because God couldn't do it, but because He flows through us. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. If there isn't any power of faith and love working on the inside of you, then those things can't come to pass. And we conceive these negative things in our emotions, in our uh, imagination, and it stops the power of God from operating. But it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what He had promised, He was able also to perform. I'm saying that you cannot be fully persuaded until you take the Word of God and meditate on it and conceive in your imagination a positive hope. Until you've done that, you aren't fully persuaded. You may know what the Word says. You might be able to tell somebody else, but you aren't fully persuaded until you have persuaded your own heart and you've conceived it and you see it. And you can see things that become more real to you than what you see with your eyes. That's awesome. And that's what these scriptures are talking about. And hope does that. Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. 
In Romans chapter 5 verse 2 it says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. No hope, no rejoicing. If you aren't rejoicing, it's not your circumstances that's the problem. It's the lack of hope that's the problem. You've let the circumstances dim your hope, put out the light. Man, that is powerful. You rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And this verse doesn't use the word hope, but I believe it's talking about the same thing. 1 Peter 1, 8, it says, Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. This says that if you... You can't see Him with your physical eyes, but you can see Him with your heart. In our heart, we've seen the Lord. You know, I've already used some of these things. I won't go through the whole thing, but I remember when that Passion of the Christ came out, people were just overwhelmed with that. And and I went to see it expecting to have a major revelation of God's love for me. And I actually was disappointed. And I wasn't upset with the movie because I believe Mel Gibson did a great job. He, he, dis, he depicted the crucifixion of Jesus better than I think anybody else has done it, so I'm not criticizing any of that. But as I was sitting there looking at Jesus being crucified, I just thought it was much more than this. This didn't even come close to describing what Jesus suffered. Isaiah chapter 52, his face was marred more than any person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. And it says he didn't even look like a human being. They didn't depict that. You couldn't depict that. But he took the sickness and the disease, every deformity, every tumor, every bad thing that has happened to the entire human race entered into that body and he didn't even look like a human being hanging on the cross. And, you know, as I was watching this, I was thinking, God, what's going on? How come this isn't affecting me the way that I thought it would? And the Lord spoke to me and he says, through the word, you have seen the crucifixion and it has made a larger impact on you by seeing it by your heart than you could ever see it with your eyes. Jesus didn't just suffer physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered in a lot of ways. And... The Lord just spoke to me and says, you've seen it with your heart and that's better than seeing it with your eyes. It was a disappointment to try and picture with your eyes something that was already real to me in my heart. It was an anticlimactic. It was a letdown. You can see better with your heart than you can see with your eyes. And because of this, even though we've never seen Jesus with our eyes, I have seen him. And I rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Here again, it's tying your emotions and your rejoicing to your hope. When you have a positive hope, when you are seeing the Lord, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. If you aren't rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory, your hope's dim. You need to work on your hope. That is really simple. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Here again, it puts rejoicing and hope together. You can't rejoice without hope. There is nothing to rejoice about if you don't have hope, if you can't see 
a positive into this. Uh, Romans chapter 15 verse 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Where is that verse? It's in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't, I've already used this once, but it says, If in this world or in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. In other words, you know, this life, we live in a fallen world. You are going to experience problems. And if your hope is always tied to just somehow or another being totally victorious in this life, you're going to be of all men most miserable. But our hope, there it is. What is that? 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The thing that gives us hope beyond other people is the fact that it's not limited to this life. You know what? I believe in healing. I believe in prosperity. I believe in deliverance. I believe in all of these things and I'm experiencing them uh, to the degree that I've renewed my mind. I'm getting stronger in it and I'm walking in it. But you know what? If I never saw anything happen, I'm going to live forever in a mansion in heaven. I'm going to walk on streets that are paved with gold. I'll live in a place that never will there be any more sickness, no more disease, no more crying, no more tears. There's not going to be any strife. And things like this. And you know what? That is the anchor of our soul. Is the fact that it's not in this life only that we have hope. And so man, you can, you can be bold. You can be aggressive in your faith. And if you somehow or another don't see everything come to pass the way that it should. You're going to have your hope completely realized in heaven. And we've got no reason to do anything but rejoice. Man, that is awesome. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Again, you know, the way you overcome grief is that you don't look at things only in this life. You look at them that, man, when a person dies, it's not like you're never going to see them again. It's just, you know, so long for a while. You will see them again. You will be reunited. And if you understand that that person is now in the presence of the Lord and enjoying His presence, it diminishes your grief and sorrow. Because you, a lot of people think, I'm grieving for this person. I had an employee that their little child died one time. And long story, but people were just talking about this little child will never know what it's like to have their first birthday. They'll never go, have their first day of school. They'll never ride their first bike. They'll never get married. They'll never go do this. And they were talking about all of the things this kid was missing. And I said, man, don't grieve for that child. That child is in the presence of Jesus. Man, who cares about the first day of school, about your first bike? Man, they're missing a lot. They're missing their first heartbreak. They're missing their first puppy dying. They're missing, you know, and and it just helps you to be able to manage the grief if you recognize it's not that other person you are grieving for. It's you that's missing them that's the problem. But we shouldn't sorrow as others that have no hope. A person that is struggling with grief, and again, I'm not saying that grief is wrong, but the grief of this world, he says others that have no hope, we shouldn't struggle the way that they do. Man, there is a supernatural supply and our hope will enable us to be able to overcome those things. It says in Psalms 147 verse 11, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him, in those that hope in His mercy. God takes pleasure. You put that together with Hebrews chapter 11 verse 
6, where it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For those who uh, come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Faith is what pleases God. And this says that God takes pleasure in those that hope in him. So again, here's a linkage between hope and faith. Just like I was saying that hope is like the thermostat. If you aren't hoping in God, then you aren't in faith. Because faith is what pleases him. God takes pleasure in those that hope in his mercy. Here's one of the big reasons that I think most people don't really pursue hope and get their hopes up is because Proverbs thirteen twelve hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. I couldn't tell you how many ministers, I've been to ministers conferences where I've heard people get up and say, don't ever become friends with people in your church, which to a degree, I understand that you, you know, you share your heart and people use it against you. And, and there's multiple reasons. But anyway, I've heard people express this thing before that, you know what, I'll just never get close to anybody again. I'll never make myself vulnerable again. I'll never really believe God for a major miracle again. And the reason is because you're afraid that your hopes will be dashed. And rather than get your hopes up, most people would rather live on a substandard plane and never be disappointed than to risk the, the possibility of your hopes being dashed. This is what the medical profession does. They do everything to keep your hopes from getting out. We don't want you to get your hopes up, but... And you know what? We just live in a world where because of liability issues and stuff like this, if you tell people things are going to work out and they don't, then you could be sued. So there's, there's physical, financial reasons. There's lots of reasons. But basically, our whole society tries to keep people from getting their hopes up because we don't want anybody to be disappointed. We want everybody to be a winner rather than let people compete for something in one win and another one lose and they get their hopes dashed. You know what? It's healthy. It's healthy to recognize that you weren't good enough. You need to work harder. <laughs> Amen. But it really goes back to this thing. Hope deferred makes a heart sick. And so most people won't ever even attempt anything. Man, I'd rather shoot for the stars and if I miss, hit the moon than shoot at nothing and hit it every time. I believe that God, I believe God wants us to prosper and He wants us to succeed. But I believe God is pleased with people who try things and fail. He's not pleased that they fail, but He's pleased that you went for it. It's like a parent with their child and they get up and they're afraid to ride a bike and they say, you can do it, you can do it. And so they try and if they fall over, man, the uh, godly parent doesn't come up and say, you stupid kid, if you'd have done what I said, you could have done this right. No, you get up and encourage them. Try again. You can do it again. You know what you're doing? You're, you're instilling hope in a person that it, despite the fact that you failed, that it didn't work out the way you believe, keep trying. Get up. That's what a positive parent, a godly parent would do is encouraging them. And I believe God's like that. I believe God's pleased with things. You know, when we moved in this building, some of you heard me say this, but we moved in three months after what I planned on. I tried to get in here in time to start the school year and we didn't move in until November of 2004. And I had a person come up and say, are you depressed over the fact that you didn't get in here by August? And I said, no, I'm not depressed. 
And they said, but you, you wanted to be in here before the school started. I said, I've never done anything perfectly in my life. I just, I'm thrilled that we got here three months late. Amen. I said, thank you, Jesus. And we got in here debt free and it worked. And I don't look at things that way. And if I try something and if it doesn't work the first time, I'll try again. I admit that it it's really bothers you when you hope for something and don't see it come to pass. Yes. But the way to respond to that is not to say, I'll never get my hopes up. I'll never believe for anything big. I'll shoot at nothing so that I'll never be disappointed. That's not the right way to respond. I tell you, we need to believe God because when the desire does come, it's a tree of life. Yes. This refers back to the Garden of Eden. Man, it, it is, there is nothing like seeing something you've been hoping for and believing for come into physical manifestation. And there's a lot of people that have never experienced that because they've never believed for anything that was beyond their ability. If you aren't believing for something that's bigger than you, something that's absolutely impossible without God, then I doubt seriously that you have heard from God. Man, God's a big God and He's going to always give you a desire to do something that's beyond yourself so that you will have to depend upon Him. If every goal for your life is something that you can accomplish, then your goals aren't right. If you're looking at your church and ministry and just thinking, well, you know, if we, if we increase 10 people this year, I think that's doable. I can do that then you know what? You ought to set a goal. You ought to let God inspire you to something that is beyond what you think you can do. You need to have a goal, something that's bigger than you. And when you obtain it, man, it's a tree of life to those who find it. In Ecclesiastes 9, 4, it says, For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You know, the reason I'm using that is to say, if you're breathing, you ought to have hope. If you're breathing, you need to start letting God paint a vision on the inside of you and give you an image of doing something and accomplishing something. Amen? Somebody says, well, I'm too old. Are you still breathing? You need to have a vision. If the vision on the inside of you is, well, I've only got five years, ten years left. I'm just treading water. I'm just, I'm going to go golf every day until I die. <laughs> Nothing wrong with golf, but I'm saying that you need to have a bigger vision than just sitting there goofing off and doing nothing. Man, use golf and fishing as a diversion, but don't make that the goal of your life. Amen. Especially if you've been called a minister. You need to have some, some goal for your life. You need to have a hope, a vision. In Acts 16, 19, it says, And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew him into the marketplace under the rulers. This is talking about the woman who used the spirit of divination and these masters used her to prophesy and do things and they made money. And notice it says, When they saw that the hope of their gains was gone. Again, this is a very clear depiction that hope is seeing something. They saw that their hope, you know what their hope was? They saw themselves getting rich off of this girl, 
using her and making money. And they saw that. They had a vision of them being rich. They had a vision of her using her divination to be able to do things. They saw it. And then all of a sudden, they saw that that hope was gone because Paul had come along and cast this spirit out of her. And they no longer could see that vision. And that's what occasioned their persecution. But this links very clearly that your imagination is part of hope. Hope is being able to see something, to expect things, expect good in the future. And they saw that the hope of their gains was gone. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 2. Here's a negative imagination. It says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And of course, this is after Elijah had called fire down out of heaven. They had a great revival. He uh, killed all of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove. He outran a chariot over 26 miles, gave the chariot a head start. And he was so pumped, he outran the chariot. Called an end to the drought. And then in, in the 19th chapter, Jezebel sent a messenger with a note and said, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. The them it was talking about were all of the prophets that Elijah had killed. Elijah with a sword killed. There was 400 prophets of Baal, but then there was 450 prophets of the groves, and so if you add those together, he killed a minimum of 400, probably 850 people. Did you know we only have maybe 600 people in this room? Can you imagine what a sight it would have been? And Elijah didn't have somebody else do it. Elijah, with his sword, killed 800 people. He's bound to have been a bloody mess. He's bound to have been soaked in blood. Can you imagine the people being just drawn out here? He saw that. That's the kind of image that would burn in your heart. And Jezebel said, I'm going to ask God to do the same to me if I make not your life like the life of one of those prophets. And it says in verse 3, And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah saw himself dead. He went back to what the image that he had seen the day before of all of these dead people laying there, probably some of them decapitated, parts of their body gone. In his zeal, I can guarantee you, he didn't do this surgically. He didn't do it in a way. I mean, it's bound to have been gruesome and he saw himself dead. You know what that is? That was his imagination. And because of it, here's this man that defied the king, defied the armies, stood there boldly and said, you build an altar and we won't put any fire under it. We're going to call on the name of the Lord and the one who's the true God, let him answer by fire. You know what? You have to have a pretty strong hope, pretty strong confidence and be in order to do that. He had done that. He had defied the king, the armies, the nation. But then a woman with a note (laughs) scared him and he ran for his life. I don't doubt that Jezebel wanted him dead, but you know what? If she really was going to kill him, she wouldn't have sent a servant with a note. She would have sent a soldier with a sword. 
She wanted him dead, but she couldn't. The whole nation had turned and they were going after God and she was just trying to intimidate him. It was a bluff, but he saw it. He saw her criticism come to pass. How many of you have let your critics and what they say and the curse that they have placed on you and on your church and on your ministry, how many of you have seen what they said come to pass? That's the problem. And Elijah ran for his life because somebody had caused him to see himself failing, see himself being overcome. And this man who turned an entire nation to God, they cried out, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. The whole nation was ready to serve God. And the, God, the preacher that God sent to preach the revival was hundreds of miles away in fear, trembling that he was going to die. Man, the whole city came out for the revival and the preacher left. There is no telling what the results of this could have been. You know, this is speculation, but God did a miracle in that nation. It could have turned that entire nation around. It could have gotten rid of Ahab and Jezebel right then. It could have ushered in some godly things. Who knows what the end result of that could have been. And it never reached its full conclusion because the guy who God anointed wasn't there. That's pretty serious. And did you know that he later told, in the 19th chapter right here, he later told Elijah, he gave him a chance to repent. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very zealous for you. I have gone out, I've done these things, I've cast down, I've killed the prophets of Baal, and I, I'm the only one in all of Israel left. Let me just say that whenever you get that Elijah syndrome where you think you're the only one and you're the only person in your city that's got any handle on God, you're the only person that's preaching the gospel, nobody is doing anything but you. You need to remember Elijah. And so the Lord brought him out and he says, stand here. And there was an earthquake, there was a fire, there was a strong wind that broke the rocks, but God didn't appear in any of the miraculous, spectacular ways. It was just a still, small voice. And he asked him the question again, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, if God asks you a question a second time, it's probably because you didn't get it right the first time. <laughs> If he lets you retake the test, don't put the same answer down. That's just dumb. So he gave him the test again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said the exact same thing. I'm the only one. And guess what God did? He says, go here and you're going to find Elisha plowing with a yoke of oxen and cast your mantle upon him. He gave him three things. He spoke to him in an audible voice and gave him three things to do. He says, you go, go anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. You go anoint uh, Haziel to be king over Syria and you anoint Elisha to take your place. God was speaking to him in an audible voice and Elisha, Elijah just did not do the first two things. He never anointed Jehu. He never anointed Haziel. You can find that because Elisha was caught up into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2 and it was 2 Kings chapter uh, 7 and 8 where his successor Elisha anointed Haziel 
and Jehu. Elisha had just given up. He quit. And God told him to do three things and all he did was go anoint his successor. I'm getting out of this. He didn't do those things. God spoke to him in an audible voice. And did you know that that means that when Samaria was surrounded and people were eating their own children because of the starvation and the drought, did you know Elisha, Elijah excuse me, was responsible for that because he didn't do what God told him to do? If Jehu would have been the king, if he would have anointed him like God told him to do, that wouldn't have happened. Did you know that Naboth being killed by Ahab was on Elijah's head because he did not anoint Jehu and uh, Ahab was continued to reign for a number of years and he killed Naboth and possessed his vineyard. All of those things happened because of this guy's disobedience. And you know how it all started? Because a woman with a note painted a picture of him dying and he saw it is what it says. When he saw that, he arose and ran. Here's another lesson to learn from that, and that is that you are your most vulnerable right after a major victory. Did you know when everything is going good is when you are your most vulnerable? Because you get to thinking, look what I've done. Let me turn over here to 1 Kings chapter 19 and just show you one other thing before we leave that passage. 1 Kings 19... He ran and he sat down under a juniper tree. In verse 4, it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. In other words, he wouldn't commit suicide because that was wrong, so he just prayed and asked God to kill him. That's the spiritual Christian way of suicide. He was suicidal, but he wasn't going to do it himself. He was asking God to kill him. And he says, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. You know, that is really revealing. You know what the problem was? Elijah had nothing but an unbroken string of successes. God told him to go announce there would be a drought. And he walked right up to the king who had been killing all of the prophets of God and boldly in front of him and his armies just said, there is not going to be dew or rain until I say so. And he got away with it. The king was stunned. God's protection was on him. And then he went to the brook Cherith, And God fed him morning and evening with flesh from these birds that brought it to him. It was an absolute miracle. Nobody had ever done that before. And then God sent him to Zarephath and he had a widow woman there that came out and he multiplied the food. And for three years, all they had was a tiny bit of meal, a tiny bit of oil. God multiplied it and he saw success. Elijah is the first person in the history of the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 18, that raised a person from the dead. Nobody had ever done this before. There was no such thing as overcoming death. You know, it's one thing for us to read it in the Bible, to hear somebody's testimony about doing it, and so therefore we think, well, praise God, if they did it, I can do it. Nobody had ever raised a person from the dead. Nobody had ever escaped death. And yet Elijah goes in and prays for this widow's son, 
and raises him from the dead. Then he goes to the king, commands the king to assemble all of the nation, and he is now in control. He's bossing the king around. The king's doing what he tells him to do. He assembles everybody. He has this fight with the prophets of Baal, and he mocks them. Says, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's on a journey. Yell louder. Wake him up. And they started throwing themselves on the altar. You know, this is the way I interpret that is that they were in a sense crying out to Baal to bring down fire and they would throw themselves on the altar as a human sacrifice to sweeten the pot to make it so that he could, you know, maybe come and do it if not just an animal sacrifice, but a person sacrifice. They were doing everything they could. They were offering themselves as sacrifice and he just mocked them. And then he poured water on top of his sacrifice, did everything he could to make it so that nobody would mistake the thing. And then he calls fire down out of heaven and it consumed everything. The people turned to God, said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And then he took all of the prophets of Baal, the prophets of the grove. He killed them all. And there was the king and all of his armies and nobody would touch him. He was absolutely in control. Then he throws himself down on the top of Mount Carmel and intercedes seven times for the drought to stop. And finally, a cloud the size of a man's hand comes up. And he says, I hear the sound of abundance of rain. He told uh, Ahab, you better get in your chariot and head for Samaria. And so Ahab took off first in a chariot and uh, Elijah outran him over 20 miles and outran the chariot. This guy had had nothing but supernatural things for years. He had no nothing that didn't work. And you know what? When everything is working good is when you are your most vulnerable And you get to thinking, look what I have done. Look at me. And I tell you, it's like flying in an airplane. You get to thinking, man, I'm going 600 and something miles an hour at 35,000 feet and I'm awesome. (laughs) It's not you that's awesome. It's that plane that's awesome. And they let you ride in that plane. If you don't believe it, just step outside of that plane and see how awesome you are. The moment you get out of recognizing God is your source and you start thinking, look what I have done, you are defeated. And Elijah had done so well that he got to thinking he was better than his fathers. And now the reason he wanted to die, God, take away my life because I'm not any better than my father. He wasn't any better than his fathers in the 18th chapter. He never was any better than his fathers. It was only his relationship to God that enabled him to do these things. But this shows you that he got to looking at himself, trusting in his own ability, and that set him up for failure. He saw himself dead. Brothers and sisters, I'm saying this in love, but there's some people in here that you've seen yourself fail. You've seen yourself the way your critics have been talking about you. You've let them get in your head and in your heart. You know what they say about you can't affect you unless you let them rent space in your mind. You can cast down those thoughts. You can take the Word of God. You can focus your attention upon God and get such a picture of God's will coming to pass in your life that it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what the devil says. It doesn't matter what your critic says. It only matters what God says and whether or not you agree with Him. 
You can turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2 and find the same thing with Lot. That this righteous man, verse 8, in seeing and hearing their unlawful deeds vexed his righteous soul from day to day. And we live in an ungodly society that's getting very close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you aren't careful, it will vex your righteous soul. It will affect the image that you have on the inside. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. We, are, we need to unplug from this world. You need to quit listening to the doubt and the unbelief and letting negative pictures being painted on the inside of you of all of these things. Man, that's powerful. I just got a few more scriptures, but anyway, let me hurry through some of this. Acts chapter 27, verse 20, it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared in many days... And no small tempest lay on us. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. You know what that's talking about? All they could see was them drowning. There was no hope. They had no positive imagination. And look at this in verse 21. Acts 27, 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and have gained this harm in this loss, but he goes on to relate how an angel appeared unto him and God told him he was going to save his life. He would uh, appear before uh, Caesar in Rome and God had given him the life of all of the people on the ship with him. But notice, after long abstinence. In other words, Paul's hope was gone too. I mean, there was no way in the natural to see a positive end to this, but Paul, how did he get his hope back? long abstinence from the natural and focusing upon the supernatural and seeking God. And I'm sure that what he did was go back to some of the promises God had given him. God had appeared unto him in Jerusalem and said, Paul, you will stand before uh, Caesar and you will go to Rome. And he wasn't at Rome yet. He had a word to stand on. And he let that word paint a picture and he was he was looking at the physical, natural things and saying, how is this going to happen with this? But he was looking again. He was lifting up his eyes and looking beyond the natural. He was seeing into the supernatural. God, how am I getting to Rome if this ship is destroyed and everybody dies? And he was de dealing with this and he just withdrew himself from all of the natural things that focuses our attention on the wrong things and he put his attention on God. And that's how you get your hope back. There needs to be an abstinence from this world, an unplugging from this world. We need to focus our attention on God. And if you do that, and if you focus, if you look up steadfastly into heaven like Stephen did when he was being stoned, and if you look steadfastly and say, God, I know that there is a way to accomplish what you've called me to do, and you keep looking with your heart, you will eventually See, God will give you a hope. He will show you how He's going to bring these things to pass. Man, that's powerful. That's powerful. It not only saved Paul's life, it saved everybody else's life. Man, there's just so many scriptures here. I'm just going to read these. Well, if I, I can't do that. I was going to say I was going to just read them and not comment, but that's a lie. So... I'll just quit. Man, praise God. 
I tell you, God has given us more than enough equipment to be able to succeed. There's no reason. Let me rephrase that. There are reasons, but there is no excuse for us not succeeding. There are reasons. I mean, everything in this world is coming against you. Satan has more than enough people to criticize your vision and to discount you and to tell you this is crazy. And he doesn't just use, you know, totally demonic people, people who are your enemies. He'll use your own dog to bite you. I mean, he'll come against you through the people who love you the most and think that they're mean well and they'll couch it with, oh, I love you, but... And I mean, Satan will just parade all kinds of people by you to kill your vision. But nobody can kill your vision without your consent and cooperation. It's up to you. You can keep this thing alive. You can meditate on the word day and night and then you will have good success and you will prosper. It's up to you. You can do this. God wants to do this. God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This is part of God's ministry to you. And God wants to do this. And I just want to encourage you that God wants to fill you with hope he wants to get the vision on the inside of you so strong that nobody can overcome it. But it takes your cooperation. And I think that if you understand what I've talked about, about how that your imagination is an important part of your hope, and if you start nurturing that, and also recognize the negative, that if you're watching something else contrary to your vision, that's going to decrease your imagination. It'll pull your imagination in the wrong direction. You don't need to picture anything that is contrary to what God is speaking to you. Just don't let it happen. Refuse it. Rise up. You know, one last verse over in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, thus saith the Lord. It says, no weapon formed against you will prosper. And then it says, and no tongue that rises against you in judgment shall prosper. There is a linkage here again. The way that Satan comes against you, one of his strongest weapons is words. Death in life is not only in the power of your tongue, it's in the power of every tongue. Every broadcast you watch, every news you listen to, every word that you read, every song that you sing... Anything that has words in it can be a weapon against you. It'll come against your standards and against what God said for you. And how do you deal with that? It says, you shall condemn. You can't say, oh God, please have all of these people quit speaking death over me. That's not how you deal with it. What you do is you condemn it. You declare that thing unfit. You stop it. Words are powerful. Words are like seeds. And if you let a word enter into you, it immediately starts germinating. And if you, because you don't want to be offensive, because you don't want to possibly be considered rude or whatever, you just let people speak death over you, speak death over your vision, counter your faith, and you don't say anything, and then you go home and two or three hours later... You start trying to dig that seed up. It's already started rooting. 
it's already started releasing its death and its power in your life. But I found that the moment somebody counters my faith, I just sit there and condemn it right then. And I try and be as nice and tactful about it as I can be, which is not very tactful. I don't try and be mean, but you know what? I just don't allow people to go speaking death over me and speaking that things don't work. I just condemn it right then. I already gave that example about the doctor who said I had a serious heart problem. And I said, that's a lie. <laughs> that wasn't real tactful, but I have done better at other times. But you just need to condemn it right then. Just stop. And when people speak something contrary, just say, no, I don't receive that. That's not what I'm believing. Counter it with something positive. And you know, if you'll do it right then, then when you get by yourself, you don't have to spend 30 minutes praying in tongues and call somebody for prayer and agreement and spend five hours in the Word trying to get your mind over their negative thoughts. You just deal with it the moment you hear it and you don't ever let the thing take root on the inside of you and end the deal right there. It's just over. But there's a lot of people that will not take a stand like that. I might offend somebody. I can guarantee you you'll offend somebody. I can guarantee it. But it's well worth it. It's well worth it. You've got to stand and you've got to protect that image, you need words, paint pictures. Don't let words paint a negative picture in your imagination. Don't see yourself failing. Don't accept those words. Don't speak those words. Don't curse yourself and don't let anybody else curse you. And if you would go out and just take what we've talked about this week and meditate in this, I can guarantee you that you would see success. You would see what you see on the inside come to pass on the outside if you don't let somebody shoot down your vision. If you don't let life get in the way. And you can do it. It's up to you. Amen? Amen. That's good news, isn't it? Father, we love you and we just thank you for these truths. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for the truth of the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for the, our ability to see with our heart, to see beyond just the physical and see into the spiritual realm. And Father, I pray that this ability that is laid dormant in some people or only work negatively, Father, I believe that this week they've been stirred up to begin to take your word and see with their heart the word of God coming to pass. Father, I believe that. I believe that people are going to go out of here with renewed vision. People that have only thought negatively and have never used their imagination in a positive way, I believe that that's turning around and that people are going to start dreaming and seeing your perfect will for their life come to pass. Father, we thank you for that. And we just praise you that there's going to be a lot of really great results come from this conference. Thank you, Father, for every person who's come, for every person who has helped minister to people, and we give you the glory. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for all that you've done in our lives.